Please remain risen and receive the words from the gospel according to, the, to Luke, the ninth chapter, beginning with the 51st verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent his messengers ahead of him. On their way, they, in, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Receive what the Spirit is saying. I invite us now to pray together. God of grace, amazing grace, we pray that you would draw near to us, that your Holy Spirit would come and dwell with us afresh and anew, and that you, by your grace and your mercy, would allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable to you. For you and you alone, O oh God, are my rock and our salvation. Amen. The question at the center of our reflection for today in this series on living the questions is not a common question. We don't all go around asking the question, where is the God of Elijah? It's not the one that we ask most often. And it may on this day, with everything going on in our city and our nation and our world, it may come across um, as maybe not so important to question. And it might even make sense to ask who, especially if you've not knocked around churches or synagogues for very long, it might make sense for you to ask, who is Elijah? And why should I care about his God? When I began working on this sermon, I imagined 
that I would be able to provide some quick, solid data on the identity of Elijah. That just shows how much I still have to learn. <laughs> Because as soon as I got into it, it became very clear very quickly that Elijah has many identities, only a fraction of which is in the actual Bible. All of it is important, I think. And my hope is that by sharing today just a few highlights about Elijah and the Elijah tradition, some insights will emerge about why we might care about Elijah's God. Historically, Elijah was a prophet who lived in the ninth century before the Common Era in Israel during the time of the divided kingdoms. He called people to turn away from idols and to turn toward the God who had brought Israel through so much. Particularly, Elijah found himself going toe to toe with King Ahab, the king of Israel, who was in power from around 869 to 850. And King Ahab not only allowed the worship of the Canaanite storm god Baal, but also gave that god official cult status in the capital. And furthermore, he married a Phoenician princess, Jezebel, who brought her versions of the same god into the capital city. The two of them together started a campaign of persecution and murder of the prophets of Yahweh. What ensued, of course, was a violent religious war. In one of the best-known episodes of this conflict, Elijah issues a challenge to King Ahab, telling him to assemble all of his idolatrous prophets on Mount Carmel. That would have been 450 of his and about 400, it says in the text, of uh, Jezebel. And it was just Elijah. So it was Elijah and all these prophets. And in this, in this challenge, Elijah intends to settle once and for all who has the true, authentic voice of the divine. And perhaps he had some other things in mind, too. The challenge, which was... Basically, we're going to have a barbecue, and you're going to have your four, uh, 850 prophets do whatever it is you do to try to get some fire on this meat so that we can eat it. And then I'm going to do the same, and let's see who wins. And lo and behold, the prophets of Baal did all the things they do, and nothing happened. It was a big mess. And then Elijah comes up and calls down fire from heaven. And um, it burned up everything, so nobody got to eat, <laughs> which I thought was a real waste of some, some anyway. So, so but, but the, it, was, it was like such powerful fire, everything was destroyed, and, and even the water got taken up by the fire. Bottom line, Elijah won the challenge. 
And the scripture says that when all the people saw it, they proclaimed Yahweh as Lord. They were convinced. And I assume that all the people included the priests and the prophets of Baal. But you see, after this happened, Elijah did not follow God's Levitical law that says, quote, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. These were Israelites, most of them Israelites, that had been there at that event. You shall not take vengeance, it says, or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19.18. You see, at the end of the day, Elijah claims a victory calling down this fire from heaven. But following that, when the people had said, we believe we turn to the Lord, what happened? All 850 of those prophets, Elijah ordered to be killed. He claimed a victory and left 850 people dead. Now, on the run then from Ahab and Jezebel after his performance at Mount Carmel, Elijah complains to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for your Israelites have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. They are seeking my life to take it away. A bit later on in the passage, God informs Elijah that there are, in fact, 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. He is not the only one who's remained faithful. And that maybe it's time to identify a successor to his prophetic role. A little early retirement. Now, I didn't realize this, but there are rabbis, because I got, came on this story and I was like, what is this? Rabbis in the Jewish interpretive tradition, known as the Talmud, suggest that this transition that we read about in our text today between Elijah and Elisha is precipitated by this moment, by Elijah's excessive zeal, not just this moment, but others. Because guess what? In another story a little later, what, is, what does Elijah do? He kind of liked the sort of calling down fire thing. And so he called down fire to kill a bunch more people. So some of the wise folk in the early Jewish interpretive tradition suggest that this transition is precipitated by Elijah's excessive zeal. Using Moses as a, com as a point of comparison, Elijah's not matching up. The rabbis point out that Moses' attitude consistently toward the Israelites, even in their worst behavior, was characterized by his concern for the people. He was clear about his call to bring the people back to God, not to destroy them for their turning away. But Elijah, on the other hand, seemed more concerned, really, at the end of the day, about his own disappointments and his own frustrations with, uh, with what's going on than with the people he's been called to care for and lead. Even after a direct encounter with God in a cave at Mount Horeb, reminiscent of Moses' own encounter there, Elijah's mind and vision don't change at all. 
He's still only focused on, his, on himself. He doesn't change his perspective or turn as an advocate toward the Israelites, but remains their most determined judge. And so it's imagined that the reason for Elijah's forced early retirement is that his zeal has gotten the better of him, that leads him to focus not on how to turn God's wayward people back to the one in whose love is found wisdom and peace and guidance, but on himself and his own persecution. Elijah's zeal led him to lose sight of the heart of the divine law of love and of mercy, and instead to use his God-given power to do violence to get what he thinks is right. Now, several things that I've shared so far may seem particularly troubling in our current context. Rivaling gods and religious violence strike a very tender place right now. And the idea that the God of Elijah was in any way aiding and abetting this this behavior does not bode well for that God's campaign among us today. But y'all, how about the wisdom of the early Jewish siblings to recognize that God created a way to move Elijah, who was, in fact, a powerful prophet and one who truly sought to serve God? How about the way that God moves Elijah out of a situation in which he had begun to do harm And further, that you take him out in a way that takes him up in a whirlwind to heaven, therefore making Elijah continually available to God for new kinds of work. There are some church traditions that would say, look at God. In the later prophetic book of Malachi, Elijah is written of as being one who will come ahead of the last days to call families to reconciliation so that broken relationships won't bring curses upon the land. And in further Jewish tradition, Elijah is said to have appeared, appeared in bodily form, come to be with somehow people on earth to give guidance and to be present and to provide help to people in crisis. One scholar of the Elijah tradition says simply, the Elijah of the Talmud is in some sense a partner of God engaged in the great work that would come to be called tikkun olam. That is the repair of the world. But before all of that, We have this moment of succession and transition. Elisha, who was tapped for this new gig while at the plow, has been a prophet in training with Elijah for some time. And just before the most dramatic moments of the story we heard today, 50 members of the prophetic guild have walked with Elijah and Elisha to the Jordan, everyone evidently having heard through the grapevine that Elijah is on his way out. 
And Elijah uses his mantle, which is a vestment worn to signify the prophet's calling and power. Elijah uses his mantle to touch the water and part the waters of the Jordan so that he and Elisha can cross to the other side. This, of course, is ritual and points back to those moments in the history of Israel, like when Moses parted the sea during the Exodus and the time that Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Moments of key transitions. When on the other side, Elijah asks Elisha what he might do for him, and Elisha sidles up to the prophetic power bar and asks for a double. And this, of course, was the custom for sons in that culture. The younger son, or the eldest son, in this case, the younger prophet, asking for a double portion of the inheritance of Elijah's spirit. He wanted enough, not more than Elijah had, but enough. Now, this whole story, frankly, is a story you should go read the whole of. I'm telling you right now, it's a good story. And it clearly is one that started out around campfires and at open mic nights. Because it's written with the repetitions and the rhythms of oral history. And every good story loves a little drama and flash. And so bring in now the fiery horses and chariots that swoop down between the prophets and the whirlwind that takes Elijah up to heaven with nothing left of him but his mantle. Only Elisha witnesses this extraordinary exit, and then he returns with the mantle to the banks of the Jordan and the 50 members of the prophet's guild still there in the distance, and he strikes the water with the mantle that had fallen from Elijah, having asked, where is the God of Elijah? And I, I find this such a baffling thing to say. I mean, at first it might seem that it makes sense, but I started thinking about it. It's a problem when I start doing that. <laughs> Things get more complicated. Did Elisha touch the water and ask the question, hoping that God would show up and do something? Was Elisha afraid that God had hitched a ride on the whirlwind and had peaced out with Elijah? Does Elisha ask the question rhetorically to speak sideways to those other prophets who were waiting in the wings to prove that he was the true successor of Elijah? Was Elisha calling upon God to guide him back into the places where he needed to go as he crossed back over the Jordan, stepping into his new life? Regardless of the answer, which we, of course, will never know, it is clear that the God who had been with Elijah is with Elisha. It is clear that the work of prophecy needed to go on and that God had a good succession plan and that God loves a peaceful, ritual, powerful succession of power. Good transfer of power, our God's all about it. I'm just saying, it's in the Bible. It is clear that God calls people who are doing ordinary things to do extraordinary things, from plow to prophet. 
And if you read further in 2 Kings, you will see that Elisha was, in fact, a different kind of prophetic leader, not necessarily shying away from violence. There was, in fact, an early incident involving two she-bears that was very unfortunate. But certainly he was, was not perfect, but more focused on using his powers not to call down fire upon those who turned away from God, but rather using his powers for the purpose of care and giving hope and new life. So where does this leave us? Why should we care about Elijah's God? Well, a lot of times the thing that makes us sit up and pay attention is something new and shiny. And Elijah's God is not a new God, but rather an eternal God, the God of our ancestors in the faith, Abraham and Moses and Deborah and Ruth and Mary Magdalene and Peter and all the prophets and saints right up until this day. The God of Elijah is the God who is, in fact, the source and the sustainer of all life. Elijah knew that. The liberator from all bonds. The God of Elijah is the beauty in all things, the wisdom that heals and holds things together, the love that fuels passion and creativity and joy. Elijah's God is not a God who needs an apologist or a campaign manager. Well, except for the times, <laughs> except for the times when people get overzealous and begin wielding the name of God in ways that are counter to the central message of the Bible, which is love and right relationship, a.k.a. justice. We know good and well how often God's name is taken in vain and used to justify all kinds of violence and to try to convince people that God is a God who wants to control bodies and lives instead of setting us free. A God of punishment rather than reconciliation and mending. We know that that is a message that others try to proffer again and again. Today's story reminds us that God can deal with that, not not through destruction, but by wise intervention and management. Even the best of God's servants can fall into ways of doing harm. Elijah's God is a God who loves Elijah and who knows his heart and his power and who creates a way for him to grow on the journey with God and to serve God's people in ways that give hope and encouragement and even brings reconciliation in the future. What we see is that Elijah's God is a God of grace and mercy. Elijah's God is a God who lifts up leaders and whole communities of the faithful from age to age to call people away from idolatry, from all of those things that make empty promises and cannot give or sustain life, those things that destroy and divide, those things, literally things, that fuel hatred and whittle complex realities of human life down to check the box, yes or no, 
Elijah's God is not a new, shiny, easy, quick fix, make you comfortable, ask nothing of you God. God knows that the promises of life, mercy, and hope, and justice are fulfilled as we receive God's love, as we love God back, and as we love our neighbors as God loves us. And none of that is easy or quick. And when we've been at it a long time and still don't quite get it or can't seem to get it together as a people, Elijah's God is a God who sends Jesus into the world that we might know the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets, the incarnate vision of what God always seeks for our lives, that we might perceive what love and justice look like in the flesh and receive the message that we are not called to call down fire on anyone, but to be agents and ministers of peace. For God so loves the world. Why might you care about Elijah's God? Because Elijah's God cares about you. Where is Elijah's God? God is with you every second of every day in every high and low of your life, wanting nothing but your flourishing. And through that, your participation Follow me, says Jesus, your participation in the mending of the world. Where is Elijah's God? With you. Whether you care about God or not. Thanks be to God.